We are marching our way through the book of Acts, so open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to cover the first 15 verses this morning, and as always, God's Word is incredible. I think we're in a really cool section this morning, Um, but they're all cool sections when we sit and study. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you great thanks that you have allowed us to be here this morning. And when I say here, I mean in your presence. You are our God who has created us. And we bow our knees and our hearts and our minds and our lives to you this morning. Not only as our creator, but as our king. You are our sovereign You give us your laws. You are our judge. It is your strength that protects us. You are the one who provides for us and sustains us. You give us community. You give us relationships. And all of this, Lord, we we submit ourselves to you. We're asking in faith that you give to us your Holy Spirit. You tell us, Lord, to ask you for your spirit. We ask you. That we would hear your voice and have your mind and have your heart. That we would know you and understand you. Long for you. Grow in you. Be close to you. We ask that you would be elevated this morning in everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and read all 15 verses and back up and tell the story. So now, when they, assuming that they is Paul and Silas, we'll come back to that. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollon, Apollonia, you say that, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down, have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. That's what I've titled this morning, Another King. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest... They let him go. 
Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go out uh, to go out to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. All right. So remember what's going on overall in the book of Acts. You have this man, Luke, who is writing to another man, Theophilus. And you could look at the Gospel of Luke and Acts as part one and part two, two different letters that that, uh, Luke is writing. But as Luke is writing, his focus, the, the thrust of what he is doing is he is describing the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem as he focuses on what the Lord was doing through Peter and the apostles there in Jerusalem and then into Samaria. And now the focus is on Paul and others as the gospel is going into, into uh, Asia Minor and now it's into Europe there in Macedonia where these communities are located. So in that... Luke's attention for us is he is not causing us to look at what these wonderful men and women have done in the name of Jesus. He is causing our attention to to say, look at the work of God in all of creation. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This creation is broken. We all know it. It is broken because of sin. And here's the solution. The solution is through this promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And as all these men and women, they're there in their communities and they're being sent out. This is who they are proclaiming, who the Christ is as defined by the word of God. And then saying this man, this unique, specific individual in time, in history, Jesus, this is the Christ. And when people bow the knee to Jesus as king, this is what we're witnessing, God's workmanship in his creation, specifically in human beings who are responding to him, in receiving him, or who are responding to him in rejecting him. And this is the contrast that we see. So now remember, the the Holy Spirit is the one who has given this vision to Paul to come over to Macedonia. So as we sat in chapter 16, we watched them go into Macedonia. We watched them go to Philippi. And as they're in Philippi, you have a unique experience in Lydia and in her household where we're told that God is the one who opened her heart. When we sit in the jailer, we are given that God does something supernatural in shaking the earth with an earthquake to capture the jailer's attention so that he and his household will listen to the gospel. So we're left with these two households in Philippi. There may be more, we don't know, there may be less. But as we listen to the language, I brought this last week, up last week that uh, Luke joined up with Paul and Silas and Timothy as they came over to Macedonia using this language, we. 
but the word they is used at the end of chapter 16. And the they there is probably only Paul and Silas. Luke remains here for an extended period of time. We see him show up in Philippi, that he's still there in Philippi when Paul comes back years later and they join up together again before they go to Jerusalem. But it seems from the narrative just here in chapter 17 that Timothy was also left behind in Philippi, that he misses out on this experience in, um, in Thessalonica and then we see him there again in Berea. I'm bringing this up because the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to hit the pause button in Acts. And the same thing that we did with Peter's letter as we moved away from Peter in the book of Acts, we wanted to sit with him a little longer and get his heart as he wrote to the church. We're going to do the same thing with Paul's letter to Philippi, even though chronologically it's towards the end of Paul's life. But in that, we get a snapshot of what's going on right here in this time in Paul's life and his interaction with the church there in Philippi, specifically with Lydia, as her household and others of Philippi, they are supporting Paul and others as they're there in Thessalonica. And you see Paul give that testimony. Paul, is, Paul and Silas, they're only in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. So... A minimum of two weeks, right? Two full weeks. You could have three Sabbaths, you know, two weeks in a day. Or maybe pushing four weeks. They are in this community for a very shortened period of time. And when you turn your attention to his letters in First and Second Thessalonians, he's writing those letters while he is in Athens. So we see that in chapter 17. Or while he spends a year and a half in Corinth. And in those letters, we watch him sending messengers back and forth because he has a great concern for how shortened his stay was with them for the persecution that they're enduring and for all the lies that the Jews are speaking about him. He is trying to set the record straight and encourage the church to continue to bow the knee to Jesus as king and not to Caesar, not to another governor, not to any local leader, not to religious leaders, but bowing the knee to Jesus and Jesus alone. So for the next three weeks, those are the three letters that we're going to go through. And we'll go again, we'll keep the pace fast. We'll do all of Philippians next week. And uh, the next two letters, uh, First and Second Thessalonians, the week after that. Now, attention here in Thessalonica. This is about 100 miles away from Philippi. So even as you think about the continued relationship between Paul and the church there in Philippi, the diligence that it takes, the effort that it takes, uh, the love that you have to have for another person to actually travel that distance and be concerned about. This is 100 miles down the road. Paul's custom, his habit, his tradition, as he is going into new communities, he's going to go into the location where people believe in the true and living God already. They already have either a Jewish background or they have already been introduced to the God of the Jews who is the God who created the heavens and the earth, who is the true and living God. These are the people that he's going to and communicating first. So here's his habit. We're going to contrast, not uh, we're not going to, it's not contrast. The conversation that occurs in Thessalonica with the Jews and the Greeks, it's very healthy and it's very good. But the difference between 
how the conversation looks like, what it looked like there in Thessalonica in comparison to what it looked like in Berea, there is an elevation of the character of the minds and the hearts of the individuals in Berea in comparison to that of Thessalonica. And it's not poo-pooing on those in Thessalonica, like look at these soft-minded losers. The attention is going, look at the elevated character and the noble character of these individuals in Berea. So we'll get to them in a second. So those in Thessalonica, Paul's habit is he steps into the synagogue and week after week, we get the impression that they're gathering in an environment like this where there is a cultural tradition of what worship looked like as Jews gathered together. But in that, in that tradition, even after the reading of the word or guests, they would be invited to come up and to speak to the people. This is going to be fellowship time. They're going to be having meals together. This is an extended period of, of gathering. It's just not we're in and in out in an hour. This is a half-day thing. This is a cultural thing. This is a, an all-day thing. And the idea behind that is when it says that he is reasoning with them, he's not just standing up there like I am to you right now, and I'm the only one talking and you're just listening. The idea of reasoning is they're having discourse. They're having dialogue. They're having a question and answer session. So some of it is Paul is going to be standing before the group speaking. He's going to be turning to portions of the scriptures. And this is what it says when he, uh, he's turning to the word of God. He's opening up these scrolls, probably the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it says that he is explaining, which literally means he is opening the scripture wide. So this isn't to, he's not coming at him with this heavy theology in mind, but he's opening the word of God and he's explaining it in a way that causes there to be an openness. Like here is the word of God laid bare. Here is God's prophecies. Here is his word. Here is his voice. So you know, it's not just me that is communicating this, but here's the authority of the word of God. This is what it says. So he is explaining it in a way that causes it to be open and known and then it says that he's also demonstrating so that he's giving evidence I am in your presence declaring to you what the word of God says about who the Christ is and when we open the pages of the Old Testament we see this anointed one the Messiah as a very high permanent forever king son of David as God has described but at the same time, we, what we see these descriptions of his majesty, that his kingdom is forever, that he will be king forever, that his throne will never be removed. Again, eternal life is described in those prophecies. But then we see other portions when it talks about this Christ, this anointed one. And we can sit in Psalm 22, we can sit in Isaiah 53 as we've been going through Acts, we've brought up these passages a lot. The Old Testament, the scriptures also describe the Christ suffers. And the suffering, the pain that the Christ endures according to the scriptures is the suffering of death. Opened word of God. Not just a singular passage, not cultural traditions, but this is God's revealed word to us, opened in a way and explained away. And not only is the Christ going to suffer, the anointed one wasn't going to be allowed to see corruption. 
And we've talked about those passages that tell us, that promise us, the Christ will rise again from the grave. This is the conversation that Paul is having with these people on the Sabbath day. We don't know what his conversation looks like throughout the week, but as we step into both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul is reminding them, my example is I was with you for these few weeks, for this month, whatever this looked like, I was working. I was working night and day, not taking your food, not taking your money, not taking your clothing, not taking your shelter. I came to you to give to you the truth. I came to give to you Jesus and Jesus alone. And this again, so when we sit in the testimony that this is what he is teaching, that this is what he is proclaiming, he's opening the word. Here's what the word of God says about the Christ. And I am telling you that this Jesus who revealed himself to me, Paul says, and then he has all the demonstration of the miracles and the wonders that have been being performed in his life, through his life as he is ministering. Here is, the, here is the gospel, and it is all pointing to the singular man, Jesus. He is the Christ. And then the language is that what? Some of them are persuaded. They're convinced. And when you stand back, when you go back to your first introduction to Jesus, you may have grown up in a Christian household where Jesus is a name that you have heard from birth. For me, yes, I had the name of Jesus, but I didn't have any real context to him or about him. So for me, I had people come alongside of me and dialogue with me. And I was able to ask questions. And they were able to give me answers as God is the one who is opening up my heart. So for me, like, I personally sit in this life testimony of I was, I was convinced people were opening up the word to me. They were demonstrating to me through this that, yes, I believe that God is real. And who is this God? And I became convinced that the God of the Old Testament, the New Testament, this is the God who created me. And I came to this point where I was convinced that this individual, Jesus, died for my sins. And not just mine, but for the whole world. And that decision is, I cast in my lot where it says that they joined Paul and Silas. Literally means that these Thessalonians, Thessalonians, whatever they are, they joined themselves. They attached themselves to Paul and Silas is the language. And literally, the idea is they cast in their life's lot in with them. They raised their hand and said, I'm in. What you're saying, I believe. The Jesus that you're talking about, I am bending my knee to him, and I am becoming one with you because he is making us one together. And that's the heart. So, do any of you want to throw stones at the Thessalonians? I mean, this is, this is great. This is wonderful testimony. And it's not just the Jews that are coming to faith. There's a great multitude, it says, of devout Greeks. These are, these are individuals who are already worshiping the true and living God in the midst of the pantheon of false gods, false kings there in Greece and Macedonia here. Singles out. Leading women, prominent women, the first women of the community. 
Um, you, see, you see that relationship there with Lydia. You see that here in Thessalonica. We see the women lifted up and exalted as these prominent, these leading, this, these prestigious women are responding to the Lord. And they are, again, this isn't a, um, this is a culture where women really were just about one notch up from a slave. Um, it's very foreign to our culture. And for Luke to be giving this testimony for the Holy Spirit through Luke, he always elevates women wherever the gospel goes. It's only mankind that tries to push other human beings down. But we see this testimony in these communities, the women of these communities, the first women, the leading women, the prestigious women. And we would say, we're going to see this in a minute, the well-born women are coming to the Lord. And again, they're being highlighted intentionally, attached to the Lord. Well, I bring this up all the time because the word of God brings it up all the time. God always teaches us through contrast. Here are the individuals who are responding to Jesus, bending the knee to Jesus and loving Jesus. And then here are the others who are rejecting. And this idea where they were not persuaded there in verse five, it's that they were disobedient And they're not being disobedient to Paul and Silas. They are being disobedient to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit has just made known the gospel, made known himself in truth to these individuals, even as they are sitting in the evidence and the arguments and the questions and answers of the revealed word of God. These individuals, it says, It's not that they're blind. It's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they're they're not listening. It's not that they're not intelligent. It's that they're intentionally saying, no, I will not bow my knee to Jesus as Messiah. And their offense is who Jesus was, what he represented, He didn't fit their theological frameworks. So ultimately, this is an act of disobedience. I bring this up because what did Adam and Eve do? All they did was disobeyed God. They did, God said, don't do that. And they did it anyways. All they did was disobey. When you deal with the testimony about King Saul's life, Samuel out of his mouth, it says that God considers disobedience just as the sin of witchcraft. Again, if we sit in the idea of what we imagine and think witchcraft is all about, most of us are going to go ooh and shirk away from, but when it comes to disobedience, about doing what you want to do when you want to do it, rather than bowing the knee to Jesus at all times, it's easy for us to disobey. Again, here is, again, you can, you can sit in this imagination yourself. How long were you disobedient to Jesus as he knocked on your heart and was opening you? How are you disobedient this past week? I, mean, I want you to sit in this idea because we're going to sit in Jesus as a very different king in a minute idea of envy is coming up. Envy is this, it's this emotion of resentment of, um, this is an exclusive Jewish community. We have the traditions of Moses that have been handed down to us. Some of 
uh, that have been a part of our exclusive community are now attached to this other community over here and it wells up this emotion of resentment and jealousy and envy. So in this, you have the Jews pretending to be, thinking that they are holy, that they are more righteous than Jesus himself, than Paul and Silas that are communicating the gospel, says that they go and get these wicked men. So in the, in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, we see this word evil often, evil, wicked, bad. Uh, it's translated different ways, but in the Greek, there's two different words. One of them is this idea of it's just Evil in, in general, just this description. This word is not just evil in general. It's evil that's not satisfied in its own evil, but wants to drag everybody else down with it. It's poneros is the word in the Greek. Kakos is the other word. I bring this up because, again, this is the, these holy Jews in... In their offense, in their resentment, in their envy, they're going to the basest, most evil, most wicked uh, losers, so to say, of their community, of the marketplace, and they're stirring them up intentionally to use them as a tool because they have no power to stop Paul and Silas themselves. So they're going to use this tool and an evil tool justifying their means to get the end that they want. Does that make sense? Again, how, how quickly blinded our hearts can be. So they drag them, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're stirring the crowd, they're pulling this mob together. And the, the words that they're using is these individuals who we are hearing about, testimony, this is what they've been doing in other communities. They've now come here and this idea that they've turned the world upside down, the word for world there, it's not cosmos. Uh, it is it's a different word that is, it's, it's referring to the Roman Empire. These individuals who have been rebellious to the Roman Empire in these other places, they are now rebelling against Rome here. And they're only using this language to stir up the crowd, again, to get this doctrine, to get this Jesus, to get this other king out of there. And this is the word that they're using. They're preaching to us another king other than Caesar. And the word for another, again, in the Greek, you have different words. There's another that is another of the same kind. When Jesus says, I will send to you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the word another helper, that another, it's another of the same kind. This word here, another, it's another of a different kind. The accusation that they have, these men are preaching another of a different kind king. And I say to that, amen. And we sit, again, we, don't, we sit in a democratic, this, this democracy, this republic where, you know, we have elected officials and representatives that they are our servants, right? We have a constitution that this is the power that the people have granted. These are the rules that you have to abide by. We have learned, uh, term limits so that an individual cannot act like a king. There's all these barriers to keep a man or a woman from being king or queen in our culture. So when we think about king, it's, it's kind of a foreign concept. We just think about the queen of England. And when I think about that, I just think of tabloids, right? It's, you know, British tabloids and it's all super weird and it's all meaningless um, the idea of king 
means that you get on your knee and you make a vow of fealty. I am, and again, what, and what I'm doing right now, when is the only time that we do this in our culture? Will you marry me? And what, what an image that this is. Bowing, bowing my knee to my wife. Often, I want to get up. You bow to me. I'm the head of the household. You serve me. There's this, there's this heart attitude of love. I'm swearing myself to you alone. To the exclusion of every other woman in this world, I am yours and you are mine. This is the imagery of what we do when we say that Jesus is our king. We bow the knee. Jesus, you and you alone are my sovereign. I love the songs that we sang this morning, talking about God clothed in his majesty. Revelation 4 and 5, I love that song. Why? Because it's like, here is heaven. We get this glimpse into heaven just exploding in worship of God as king on his throne and Jesus as the worthy one, the only worthy one. I love it. But when we say that Jesus is our king in our culture, a lot of the imagery is lost because we'll say that, yes, Jesus is my king, but man, he's given me all this freedom and there's all this grace. I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, I'm free. Don't tell me what to do. We bow, and again, Jesus teaches this in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. There, what, I guess it's going to be Matthew 6, 5, 6, right in there, where we can only serve one master. We can't bow the knee to two different kings. And here's the idea, here's the envy that we sit in the Thessalonians here. And this is the envy that Satan has against us and against Jesus. When you got up off of your knees and stopped bowing to Satan, and you came over to Jesus and bowed your knee to him that he is your king, that upset your old king. And the conflict started, and the war started. In this world, in this culture that we live in, when we say, I bow my knee, my life, my wife, my children, my job, my, my words, my hobbies, my activities, my interests, my, my, I bow everything to Jesus, well, often we get pushback. And that's the pushback that they're giving. You bow to another king, you are in rebellion towards us. And this is what, again, ultimately this idea that you have been convinced that Jesus is your king. You are bowing the knee to him. You have made vows to him. And as our sovereign, he tells us what to do. He is the judge. He is the lawgiver. He is the provider. He's the military. He is everything. He's king. He's priest. He's general, he's friend, he's employer. Everything that we do in life ought to be, again, in this direction that I'm bowing the knee to Jesus as king. And then when you get into, you know, this, uh, Jason's the one that gets arrested, some of the other brethren, 
They get out of uh, being beaten, which is pretty awesome, but they had to pay a fine. Um, but you can tell from this that the rulers of the city is, we don't want Jesus, uh, J- uh, Jason, we want Paul and Silas. They ca- caused them to pay a fine. They let them go, but you can tell the hunt is still on for Paul and Silas in the community because the church sends them away by night. And remember, three, maybe four weeks, they were there with the Thessalonians. The relationship, the joining together that occurred in Christ. And we watch this bond. We'll see it in a, in a couple weeks as we sit in those letters. But now to Berea. So here they're in Berea. When they show up, same behavior, same habit. They go into the synagogue of the Jews. And it says that they were more noble-minded. So it didn't say that the Thessalonians were not noble-minded, but for the Bereans, there's something that's elevated about their character. And this is what this word, fair-minded, means. It means well-born. It means noble. So even as we think that Jesus, not think, we know, Jesus is our king. He is noble. When we think about the character of nobility, we want to think about the character of Jesus, not what we know about nobility from history. The imagery that's been given to us, this word that's being used, is here is a mind that is noble. Here is a mind that is elevated in character. And what is the description that we're given? Not just having dialogue and discourse, Not just allowing somebody else to open the word of God to you and give you evidence and having uh, me just speak to you and you becoming convinced of the argument that I'm laying before you. The elevated mind is you dig in. Because what did they do? It says that they receive the word with all readiness. And the idea of readiness is I am eager to engage in this conversation. Now, What kind of conversations are you eager to engage in? Like my wife right now, she is very eager to engage in a gardening conversation. Now, I'm going to join in those conversations, and I want to know about gardening about this deep. I want her to tell me what to do. It's her garden. I was out spraying weeds yesterday. She called out the door, don't you dare go into that garden with that weed killer. So I stayed away from it, right? But she's doing the research. She knows the plants. She knows how to plant them. She knows what the soil needs. She is sitting in depth. She is eager to have that conversation about plants because it's something that she is interested in. She's eager to have the conversation. Now, how many people, even in the body of Christ, when you start talking about Jesus, all of a sudden the eagerness to have a conversation just went like this. You ever been part of a conversation when you're talking about something that you're really interested in and nobody is home on the other side of the conversation? They are not eager to hear what you are communicating. And again, this is, this is the ought, this is the should, this is the hope, this is the goal. That any time and every time Jesus is mentioned, whether, I mean, whatever that looks like, that there would be an eagerness to engage in that, to listen to what others are sharing and speaking, context of their life, eager to, to share, eager to, to yeah, I've heard Jesus is my king, he's awesome, and then go into the word. What does that mean that he's king? Because we have Genesis to Revelation to give us description of what it means of Jesus as king. We could, spend, we could spend three months 
just examining that subject matter in its depth. So here the Bereans, their elevated character that's being highlighted in the word of God is they were eager to engage in this conversation. They were eager to open up the Bible themselves. And remember, this is, they don't have bound books like this. This is going up and opening up scrolls. These are rare in the community. You only had a scroll of the Bible or segments of the Bible if you were wealthy. So to do this kind of study required effort. It required diligence. It required a library. Hey, what are you reading? You reading the same, you know, discussion and dialogue, this eagerness. And then it says they searched. And this idea for search, it's examining. It's the same thing that a judge is supposed to do as he's on the bench. It's the same thing a physician is supposed to do is let's look at the evidence. The doctor, you're, you're sick, you're not feeling well, and you go to the doctor, what does the doctor do? They examine you, they take tests, they, how are you feeling in your chart, and here's where we think that you fit in that kind of, this is the deep analysis that they are doing. And again, a lot of times when you talk about Bible study, people's eyes just roll in the back of their head, I don't understand it, I don't get it, um, I'm not eager, I'm not engaged. We can all be in different pockets at different times in our life, but what's being described for us, again, is it's the goal. Here's the elevated character. If you're not hungering and thirsting for the word of God and getting to know your God out of his word and out of our only source of truth that describes him, why not? If you're not interested in it, and that's, that's, that's an indicator of something that's going on internally. There's a block there. There's something that's in the way. Because we all know what it's like to be in that position of, Lord, I can't wait to spend time with you. I can't wait to open your word. Lord, please let the kids sleep for two hours. Please. That's the kind of eager examination that they're doing, and they're doing it daily. And they want to see if this, what they are being told, is that really what the word of God says? Is this who the Christ really is? And then it gives us this therefore statement. Therefore, at the end of this, many of them believed. Again, I love the testimony. We, uh, uh, the testimony about Lydia is God opened her heart. The testimony about the jailer is some, an earthquake happened and he was going to kill himself and Paul intervenes and they listen to the God, different experience. For the Thessalonians, it's, it's Paul is doing discourse and dialogue and opening up the scripture and examination. Now for the Bereans, it's they heard it, they received it, now leave me alone and they went and did their own homework. All these different personalities, all these different circumstances, because God's not in a box of this is how it works and this is the way. For me, I respond to both of these sections because this, is, this has been me. I had people communicate it to me. I received it as my own, and then the Lord has taken me on a journey of where I want to dig in. I'm eager to dig in. And am I like that every day? No. And when I'm not... Lord, I'm off. I need to be corrected. Wake up that hunger back within me. But the therefore statement, this process for this community, this is how they came to believe. This is how they came to bend the knee to this Jesus as the Christ that the word of God declares. And then, again, Berea is 50 miles away from Thessalonica, and for 
the Jews to hear about the gospel is now being shared in this community for word to get back to them in Thessalonica and then for them to get so stirred up to well themselves up and make the 50 mile journey and then stir up that community to get those guys out. I mean, that's some, uh, that's some deep-seated hatred. Um, that's about all I have to say about that. This is final, final thought, and this is what we're going to do this morning. Um, I have a final thought. Kristen, Caleb are going to come back up and lead us in a couple of songs of worship. At the end of that, we will wave goodbye to everybody, and then we'll spend some time just in dialogue with one another and prayer for one another in this room. But final thoughts in regards to this elevated high character is this whole idea that Jesus as king, our father has adopted us. It doesn't matter the context of life, of history. Once we have become his, we are now well-born nobility. And there is a responsibility upon well-born nobility to what? When you think, when you watch any movie, what 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 goes on in a civilization that has that kind of noble class versus the base class, the working class, the poor class. What happens? There's a segregation. And again, it's not that we're not supposed to be involved. The nobility was always supposed to be there for the people, but there was supposed to be something specifically separate about the character of the individuals who were called noble. They were supposed to act according to the blood that they were born with. We are supposed to act according to the blood that has been shed to us, Jesus' blood. He has given to us his character. He has given to us his blood. We are now adopted. We are now his. We are now one with him. We are now inheritors. We are now all princes and princesses in his kingdom. And there ought to be in all of us that pursuit to be noble as our Father is noble, to be perfect as he is perfect. It's not in self-effort. It's not in self-cleansing. It's not that we make ourselves noble, but here is the calling. As we bow the knee to Jesus as sovereign, he is calling all of us to his noble, well-born, perfect character. Amen? All right, let's worship.